Well, it's a glorious passage of Scripture, isn't it? And it focuses our hearts most especially on God's love for us. And that's what I want us to meditate on this morning, just to kind of front load the content of the sermon or the goal of the sermon this morning is that each one of us would understand more fully just how good our God is to us and just how much he loves us. Now, he's demonstrated that to us in Christ. As I thought about the sermon this morning, and I thought about Christ's love for us, God's love for us as his children as well. I thought about the fact that love is incredibly important for children. So it's important for their physical development, for their emotional development, for their psychological development. Uh, studies have shown over and over that children who grow up in homes where they're loved and cared for, where that affection is shown through touch and through words of affirmation, well, these children just seem to do better with the stresses of this life. They tend to go through life less stressed, less depressed, less anxious than kids that grow up in homes where they're not loved, where they're not cared for in that way. According to one study that I looked at this week, uh, those effects, those benefits of growing up in a home where they're loved, well, that's still seen, that's still impacting these children even 30 years after they're initially assessed. And so growing up in a loving home is really, a, really something that gives these children resources that they need to flourish uh, as they grow into adulthood. And that's true for children in this world. It's also true for the children of God. You know, for Christians to be healthy, for Christians to be joyful, they have to understand, they have to experience the reality that God loves them deeply and that God loves them unconditionally. You know, not every Christian knows that. Many believers go through life without realizing just how much God loves them. They end up viewing God something like a cosmic judge who's just kind of waiting for them to step out of line so that he can punish them. Or they go through their lives this way. They just kind of go through their lives with this unsettling sense that God is irritated with them, uh, maybe just kind of barely tolerating them. And so they go through their lives as Christians, fearful, anxious, and, and perhaps even embittered against God. And maybe that's you this morning as you sit here. Maybe that's been your experience as you've lived your Christian life, as you struggled with this idea of God loving you and approving of you and of receiving you unconditionally. You know, perhaps if you were honest, you'd have to admit that your life as a believer has been characterized more by kind of running from God in fear of his disapproval than by running to God to receive the greatness of his unconditional love. Well, if that's you, then my prayer this morning is that this passage will be incredibly encouraging for you. Now, you will hear through the prayer that the Apostle Paul prays the greatness of Christ's love for you, and it's infinite. Paul says that it surpasses knowledge, and he prays that we would know this glorious love, and it's a love that it will take all eternity for us to comprehend. Now, I feel loud to me up here. How am I sounding to you guys out there? A little loud? Some of you are amazing. Some of you, okay, fantastic. You guys are doing well. Well, we are continuing our study of Ephesians this morning. For the past two weeks, we've been, a study, we've been studying Ephesians chapter 3. As we've said, this is, uh, this is a prayer of the Apostle Paul. He is bowing the knee, as we're going to see, in behalf of these Ephesian believers. You know, in verse 1, it's kind of where he begins this prayer. But then we said from verses 2 to 13, he kind of breaks off. There's this uh, inspired digression of thought where he goes on to unpack for us the stewardship that he has received to preach the gospel, and particularly to the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish. And he expressed the, the greatness of this stewardship, the greatness of this responsibility. And so we thought together as we looked about, at that, 
uh, about the fact that we've also been given this stewardship of the gospel, that we should be proclaiming the same gospel and helping one another grow in our understanding of this gospel. And then last week, we spent a lot of time looking at the, the church, you know, the universal church, but then also local churches, which are intended by God to be displays of his glorious wisdom. And we thought about how our relationships in the church are designed by God to give glory to him, not just to other people, but to watching angelic powers. It's pretty tremendous stuff. It's pretty amazing. Well, this morning we're looking at verses 14 to 19. The goal had been to get to verse 21, but I failed, and so we'll do that next time. But in verse 14, Paul is really picking up this prayer that he began in verse 1. Uh, you see that he uses the same words there. He begins it the same way, right? So now this is the second prayer that Paul has prayed for these believers in the book of Ephesians. If you remember when we studied Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, well, that's another prayer. Uh, that first prayer there was for knowledge. Most especially, Paul is praying that they would know the greatness of the power of God that is at work in them. They would realize the resources that they have at work in them as they seek to live for God in this world. Well, the prayer we're looking at this morning, it's a prayer for enablement. In other words, it's a prayer for strength. That's what you're going to see most especially. The central request that Paul makes in these verses is this request for strength. And it's a strength to know and to experience the greatness of God's love for them in Christ. Now, there's a lot in this passage. There's far more than we're going to be able to say uh, as we look at this passage together this morning. But in our time together, I want us to look at these two points that you received as you came through the door this morning. Two points from verses 14 to 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to see first to whom Paul prays in verses 14 and 15. And then we're going to see what Paul prays for there in verses 16 to 19. Let's look at that first point together then, to whom Paul prays. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Those first words there, for this reason, it takes us back to verse 1, where Paul says the exact same words. This is the beginning of the prayer. He's picking up, he's continuing this prayer that he had begun back there. And as we said a few weeks ago, for this reason, actually points us further back to the truth that we had learned in Ephesians chapter 2. So in verses 1 to verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is just kind of unpacking the, the glory of God's plan for individuals and salvation. And then in verses 11 to verse 23, you see Paul unpacking now God's, God's corporate plan to bring glory to himself by saving Jews and Gentiles and bringing them together into one body, into one people, the church. And now Paul's going to pray that these truths would impact, listen, the experience of these Ephesian believers. So it's one thing to know true things about God. It's another thing to be impacted by that truth. It's another thing for that truth to, to impact our experience, and that's what Paul's praying. Most especially, he's going to pray that they would know just how much King Jesus loves them. And since this is inspired scripture for all of God's people for all times, he's praying for us this morning that we would know just how much King Jesus loves us. It's a glorious thing. Notice what he says there. I bow my knee, second part of verse 14. There he's, he's talking about his posture in prayer. As you read through the Bible, you'll see, you'll see that we're never commanded, you know, some particular posture for praying to God. It's not like we always have to kneel down or always have to stand up or always have to be in some other position. Christians are not like Muslims who believe that they can only pray. 
by bowing and, and for, uh, facing towards Mecca. It's not like that for us. So we can pray when we are driving our cars, when we're standing in a line at the grocery store, when we're walking our dogs in the morning, when we're kneeling by our beds in the evenings. We can pray to our Father at all times, and he delights to have us come into his presence at all times in that way. It is interesting to note, though, when you read through the Bible and you see, you see people kneeling in prayer, it's often a sign that they're in a time of, of particular um, passion or particular emotion. So if you look at Ezra, in Ezra chapter 9, he's confessing the sins of the people of Israel, and he bows his knees, he falls on his knees before God and confesses the greatness of the sins of the people, imploring God to forgive them. And in Daniel chapter 6, well, this great edict had just been signed that was forbidding prayer, but he goes and he falls on his knees before God three times a day, and he appeals to God despite the edict. And then in this passage, Paul is so taken with God's plan for these Ephesian believers, and with the greatness of their need to know Christ's love for them, that he bows his knees and he prays for them, that they would know this great love. And notice to whom Paul prays there. He says, before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So he's praying to God the Father. But it's interesting the way he describes God the Father there. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And I think that, that needs some explanation. Because many people, when they see that, they say, well, what Paul is saying is that God is the Father of every person, every family, every nation in precisely the same way. But I think to understand it that way misses the context. Uh, the context of this passage, Paul isn't talking about the entire world, is he? He's talking about God's plan for a particular people, for his people, for the church, for the church all across the world. And it's also interesting to note that the Greek word translated every there can also mean whole. And I think in light of the context, that's how you should interpret that word. So it should really sound like this. Here's Paul's prayer. It's really to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, God is the father of all believers, whether they are in heaven in his presence or whether they are on earth now. And notice that believers find their name, that is to say their identity in him as their father. Let's just make one application from this before we move on. When we pray, we have the distinct privilege of approaching God boldly as our father. I think it's so important. Look at the way God calls, uh, Paul calls God Father there, calls him the Father of all believers. It reminds us that God is not simply our creator. He is that. And he's not simply our redeemer. Praise God, he is that. But then one of the great blessings of the gospel is that God adopts us as his sons or his daughters, and he gives us this special privilege that we can approach him in prayer. So when we become Christians, we stop talking about God as the man upstairs. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, when, when those who aren't following Jesus, they talk about God, there's this distance, right, in the way that they speak of him, uh, the man upstairs. Well, for believers, we have this privilege now that we don't speak of God that way. What, what do, how do we speak of him? Well, we speak of him the way Jesus speaks of him. Jesus says, Abba, which is to say, Daddy, and that's how we feel towards God because, well, because he is our father, uh, because we have been adopted, because we are now his sons and daughters. So when we go to God in prayer, as Paul does here, we should go and we should speak to him boldly and confidently. We should not uh, think that we are approaching someone who doesn't care about us. We should, we should be amazed that when we come to God in prayer, he is anxious to hear our prayers. And he's a good father 
He's a tender father. He's a compassionate father. And he's a father who's quick to hear our prayers and petitions, praises. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about the fatherly love of God. He said, how great is the father's love to his children. That which friendship cannot do and mere benevolence will not attempt, a father's heart and hand must do for his sons. They are his offspring. He must bless them. They are his children. He must show himself strong in their defense. If an earthly father watches over his children with unceasing love and care, how much more does our heavenly father, Abba, Father, he who can say this has uttered better music than cherubim or seraphim can reach. So think about it. Does it impact you when you think about the fact that God is your father? Does that move you? Is that significant to you that God thinks of you in that way and that you have that relationship with him? Do you, another way of putting it, is do you realize that you are precious to God? Do you realize that he cares for you individually as his son or as his daughter? This is how the Bible speaks of God for those who know him through Christ. If you would be joyful, you have to realize this. If you would have the kind of peace that you were born again to have, you must realize this, that your Father in heaven loves you and is for you in Christ. So that's what we see in verse 14 and 15. We see Paul pray to God and pray to him as the father of all believers. Now let's look at verses 16 to 19. Here we see the second point, what Paul prays for. Look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So look at this prayer. Look at how much he says in these words. Look at the extraordinary scope of what he speaks about as he relates to us uh, the greatness of Christ's love for us in particular. The prayer itself can be broken into four parts. There's a, a, a central petition, a, a first uh, petition or a first request. And then flowing from that first request, Paul wants to see three results come into the lives of these believers for whom he is praying. That first central request is found in verse 16, and it's a request for spiritual strength. So look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. It's that prayer for strengthening. And then flowing out of that first and central request, you see, you see that Paul wants God to do three things in the lives of these believers. He wants to see three results. The first result is found in the first part of verse 17, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And then the second result is found at the end of verse 17 all the way to the first part of verse 19, and it's that they would be both loving and also know the love of Christ. And then the third result is found at the end of verse 19, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, there's so much in this passage. There's far more than we're going to be able to say, but in our time together, I want us just to kind of look at each part of this prayer and I want us to try to see, by God's grace, what we can see and learn uh, about what Paul is asking God to do for these believers. Let's look at that central request in verse 16. 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the first prayer is for spiritual strength. They're going to need strength. If God is going to do in them what Paul wants God to do in their lives, they're going to need God to strengthen them to do that. Everything depends on this. So Paul wants God to to work in their lives in a way that looks like Christ dwelling within them. They need God's strength for that. Paul wants God to work in these believers' lives so that they are loving and so that they can know the love of God. And they're going to need God's strength for that as well. And then Paul wants God to fill them with all the fullness of God. And if that's going to happen, then God's going to have to do that work. He's going to have to give them strength for that as well. That's why Paul starts where he does, asking God to strengthen these believers. Otherwise, it's in vain. Otherwise, it won't happen. So from Paul's prayer, we learn this, that in and of ourselves, brothers and sisters, we are not strong. In and of ourselves, we lack the resources we need to live for God. We need the power of God then if we are going to live for God. Even, listen, if we're going to know God rightly, we need his grace and his power to be at work in that. Paul's praying that these Ephesian believers would be strengthened by God in their inner being. Uh, That is to say their spirit, their inner man. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we do not have the resources we need to live for God. We don't. We don't have the power we need. Jesus says again, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. As we're fond of saying in Christ Fellowship, the Greek word translated nothing there means nothing. And the idea is that there is absolutely nothing that we can do of eternal significance if God doesn't first do it in us. If God first doesn't give us the resources we need. So here's the thing. With God's power, there's nothing that we can't do. That's where the hope is. The hope is in God and his ability to give us his strength for this work. So we can know the fellowship of Christ in our hearts. And we can love others. We can love one another in this church, brothers and sisters. We can know and experience the love of Christ for us. And we can be filled with all the fullness of God, whatever that means. That can happen if God strengthens us. So what's the application? Brothers and sisters, it is to humble ourselves and to ask God to enable us. It's to humble ourselves and come before him and seek his strength. So before we try to do anything for God, we must first seek God for his strength to do it. That's what it looks like to to live in a faith-filled, humble way before God. It's to acknowledge that a simple thing like speaking graciously to my child is utterly outside of my reach unless God gives me grace to speak with his love for my child. It's an amazing thing, but it's what the Bible teaches. And so if we're going to walk with God, if we're going to live before God's presence, if we're going to be used by God to accomplish his purposes in the world, it will happen as we humble ourselves and ask him moment by moment, day by day, to strengthen us to do the things that he's calling us to do. And here's the glorious hope that God will do it. So here's a word of encouragement. Look, look, at, look at how Paul asked God to strengthen these believers. He says, according to the riches of his grace. And here's the good news. God is not poor. God is rich in grace. And so if we ask him for his grace, he is more than able to flood our lives with his grace so that we can do what he is calling us to do. When we come and ask him for power to live for him, he will 
answer that prayer and he will answer that prayer generously giving us everything we need to live for him so that's the the first and central request that you see in this passage it's a prayer request for strengthening for power right but now paul wants to see then three results flow into the lives of these believers who are being strengthened by god look at the first result first part of verse 17 so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith now some one might sit back and say but wait we're talking about believers so doesn't god dwell in the hearts of believers doesn't christ dwell in the hearts of believers and we would say absolutely uh, the holy spirit is the spirit of christ the spirit of christ indwells every believer so yes but that's really not what paul's getting at here uh, the word there that's so important is that word dwell it's from a greek word that speaks of settling down somewhere uh, of making a home somewhere so think about the way you treat a hotel room differently from the way you treat your home so let's say you go to a hotel room and the sink is you know got a little a little leak in it now, unless you're larry holcomb you don't get your tools and go and fix the sink do you right because it's a hotel room or if the paint you know if the paint is is kind of chipping and it's old you don't get a scraper and a paintbrush and go to work right you don't put a lot of effort into a hotel room why because yeah, it's not your home but you do put a lot of effort into your home you see you do dwell in your home and, and that's what paul wants that's a good picture of what paul's asking Jean, king jesus to do uh, he he wants jesus to make himself at home in the hearts it is the inner lives of these believers uh, he wants jesus to live there comfortably freely he wants jesus as it were to go from room to room in their hearts and to clean out all the junk and all the debris of sin and self he wants jesus to dwell in the lives of these ephesian believers with power that's the picture there christ dwelling in us in our lives with power so looking at this prayer request we should consider our own lives now we may be believers uh, jesus does dwell in us the spirit of christ does dwell in us but here's my question does jesus dwell in your heart in the way that paul is praying that he would dwell in the hearts of these ephesian believers have you given jesus access to every room of your heart or is there some secret place some small dark corner of your heart that you haven't yet given to christ is he able to move room from room in your house cleaning and working and fixing up are our hearts a comfortable home for christ well if if they're not if you know if the holy spirit you know speaks to you about some particular area in your life that you're holding back saying no you can have 95 percent of me but this five percent i'm going to keep from me and if the holy spirit's pressing that on your heart right now what should you do brother and sister you should repent open the door say yeah i've been keeping that back from you but but your king and this is your home and so you turn away from that sin and you receive his forgiveness again and you rejoice in the fact that king jesus loves you and you rejoice in the fact that he is committed. Listen, it only happens because he's committed to doing it, but he's committed to dwelling in you more and more and more, even to infinite degrees, as we'll talk about. What good news for us. Well, we see another result that Paul wants God to produce in the lives of these believers. This is kind of the longest section, the second part of verse 17, all the way to the first part of verse 19. Look at your copy of God's word that you 
being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's a lot there. There's actually two parts to this request. The first part, uh, the first part you see when he says that you, being rooted and grounded in love there, the first request is that these believers would be loving towards one another. Uh, really, that this word love there, it's the word agape. It speaks of God's love. It's the idea of a self-sacrificial love for the good of others. And he's praying that these Ephesians would be rooted and grounded in it, that it would be the foundation of their lives, that it would be the chief characteristic of their relationships with one another. And why is it important that love would be this chief characteristic in the foundation of their lives together in the church? Well, it's what we just learned last week. Because these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers, well, they're supposed to live together in such a way with such great love that watching angelic powers magnify the wisdom of God. They need God to produce this love in them for that reason. Christ Fellowship, I praise God for you, and I want to encourage you in this, that by God's grace, you're a loving church. I can see that. I see that in the way you interact with one another on Sunday mornings. I see that in the way you interact with one another through the week. I see that in the way that you honor uh, Ron, Scott, and me as elders and pastors in the church. Missy and I have recently experienced your love in a particular way as you kind of walked with us through a very difficult period uh, in our lives as a family. Uh, God has filled this church with his love. And here's the thing. There's room for more. There's room for God to do more. And to fill this church more and more. And that's a good thing for us to pray for. We never run out of the need to come and ask God to make us more loving. And to fill us with this. That we'd be more rooted and grounded in love. So let's pray that God would strengthen our church even further. To be loving towards one another and loving towards those who don't yet know Christ. There's a second part though to this request. Paul wants these believers to be able to comprehend something. To be able to grasp something to be able to grasp, to comprehend how much Jesus loved them. That's what he says there in verse 18. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So it's not only the Ephesian churches, it's all believers. But they'd have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and width and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The dimensions that you see there, the breadth and width, the height and the depth. They don't speak of different aspects of God's love. Really, they speak of this. They speak of the vastness, the completeness of God's love. You know, Paul actually lets us know that we're never going to get to the bottom of it. We're never going to fully comprehend the love of God, the love of Christ for his people, because he says it surpasses knowledge. But here's the thing. While we can never fully plumb the depths of the love of Christ for us, we can know more. And we can know more. And we can know more. And that's one of the great blessings of being a Christian. I mean, being a a real Christian. uh, Of being someone that has a relationship with God. More than a name. Is that as you walk with God, you experience more and more and more the love of God for you in Christ. It's shed abroad in your hearts. You, You trust it more. You trust it more in hard times. And you bask in it more in sweet times of just fellowship with him. It's a good thing that God does for us as his children. So so here we are. 
the, the great reward for us in this life is that we know Christ more, we know his love more, and then that's going to be the great reward for us in heaven as well. Because for all eternity, he's just going to be, a, he's going to be pouring out more and more of his love. We're going to see more and more vistas of his love open up for us, even to all eternity. And here's the thing, we're just scratching the surface here, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about something that we've got a taste of, and yet we know that we don't really know it the way we should. Let's, let's think a little bit more, dive just a little deeper in meditating together on the love of Jesus for us, because this is what Paul's praying for in this passage, that we would know this. Let me give you five truths, very briefly, five truths about the greatness of Jesus' love for us. And the first truth is this, that Jesus' love for us is infinitely great. Look at the first part of verse 19. Uh, we heard it, and it's good to hear it again. Paul says that Jesus' love for us surpasses knowledge. And, and you know it's true that we go through our lives seeking approval, don't we? We, we want to know that other people like us. We, we want to know that other people approve of us, that they accept us. But here we have, this, we have this tremendous gospel word given to us this morning, that the love of Christ for us even now surpasses knowledge. And so we are loved and approved of and accepted by the only person who ultimately matters by the one for whom we will live forever. We have no need that Jesus won't provide for. We face no temptation that Jesus will not carry us through. His love covers all of our sins. And here's the thing. It is his love that's teaching us to love him and that's teaching us to love others as well. I appreciated what John Stott said about this in his commentary. Just speaking of the love of Christ, he said the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. It's good, isn't it? Thinking about the greatness of God's love, there's a second truth. Jesus' love is freely given, not earned. So vital to realize that. There's absolutely nothing we can do to earn the love of Christ. It's been freely given to us. Jesus freely came to this world to live a perfect life in our place. He freely laid down his life on the cross in our place. And then he freely called us to himself and just showered us with his love. And we did absolutely nothing to earn it. And here's the thing. We still can do nothing to earn his great love. So we should obey King Jesus as a responsive act of love. But we have to realize that our obedience will never earn his favor. It, it will never earn his love. It's just this glorious relationship of giving, him giving himself to us and then us responding to that love. What a glorious thing for us to know that our salvation is utterly free. Utterly free. Third truth, Jesus' love for us is secure because it's infinite. His love does not wax or wane. It doesn't come or go. That means, uh, brother, listen, at the very moment of your salvation, Jesus set his love on you at its full intensity. And he has never decreased that love in the slightest degree, and he will never decrease it for all eternity. Now, sometimes we face trials in our lives that tempt us to question Jesus' love for us. 
And the thought comes in my mind, well, if Jesus loves me, why do I have to hurt so much? But friends, even in the midst of the trials, Jesus' love for us has not been reduced. The moon is always round, no matter if the shadow of the earth blocks our vision of it at times. The sun is always shining, even if thunderclouds pass before it and obscure the vision for us. And Jesus' love is always full and perfect and infinite, even when our trials block our view of that love. There's a fourth truth. Jesus' love frees us to run to him instead of from him. I think this is so important to learn because it just seems to be the propensity of the human heart that when we know we've sinned, we just want to hide. You see it in the Garden of Eden, and it's a habit that's hard to break, isn't it? Jesus doesn't love us less when we sin against him. But the shame of our sin tempts us to feel like he does. And so instead of coming to him when we realize we've done wrong and confessing that openly and seeking his forgiveness, what we do is we, we tend to want to just kind of move away for a while like Adam in the garden and hide and, and maybe try to find a way to make ourselves a little better or do some more good deeds before we finally come to God and confess our sins. And, and here's the thing, we don't, we don't have to because truly understanding the love of God frees us to run to Christ when we realize that we've sinned against him. We don't have to fear. We can run to him boldly, confidently, and seek the forgiveness that he provides for us. So here's the thing. Spiritual maturity does not look like never sinning. We are all, and the only word I could come up with was pitiful. We are all pitiful sinners. It's actually biblical. James chapter 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Just true. So what is spiritual maturity then? Spiritual maturity is getting up quickly and running to Jesus. It it means don't hide anymore. When you realize that you've sinned against him or sinned against another, you get up, you confess your sin to him, you receive his forgiveness, and then you move on knowing that Jesus paid it all. Such good news. Such good news. The more we do that, the more we run to Jesus, the more we will love Jesus. The more we love Jesus, the more we will hate our sin. And the essence of holiness is this. It's it's growing in our love for Jesus. You want to grow as a Christian? You want to be sanctified? Well, it looks like loving Jesus more and pursuing him. Fifth truth. Jesus' love is our eternal inheritance. So, We are not long for this dying world. If we want to keep the things of this life, the unfortunate news for every single one of us sitting in the room this morning is that we can't do it. This world is passing away, and we are passing away. Day after day adds more stress and strain and wear and tear, and we're not long for this world. Here's the good news. By God's grace, if you're in Christ, you're headed towards a much better world. And what will that world be like? Well, that world will be a world that's marked by love. It will be a world where we love Jesus, where we pursue him in ways that we can't in this life. And the love that we have for Jesus and the love that we experience from Jesus will increase and increase and increase and increase in measure for all eternity. The the comprehension, I should say, of his love will increase for all eternity. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards had to say about the love that will characterize heaven. Christ loves all his saints in heaven 
His love flows out to his whole church there and to every individual member of it. And they all, with one heart and one soul, unite in love to their common Redeemer. Every heart is wedded to this holy and spiritual husband, and all rejoice in him, while the angels join them in their love. And the angels and saints all love each other, and all the members of that glorious society of heaven are sincerely united. There is not a single secret or open enemy among them all. Not a heart is there that is not full of love, and not a solitary inhabitant that is not beloved by all the others. And as all are lovely, so all see each other's loveliness with full happiness and delight. Every soul goes out in love to every other, and among all the blessed inhabitants, love is mutual and full and eternal. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Well, heaven is, as Edward says, it's a world of love, and it's a world to which we are going. So at the beginning of the sermon, we said that many Christians just kind of go through their lives just kind of thinking of God as this judge who's just waiting to punish them or just with this sense that God's just not satisfied. doesn't matter what I do. He's just not satisfied with me. He's just tolerating me. And, and, and what we're saying, brother or sister, if that's you, just, just look at the Bible. Just look at what it says. Just look at how broad and how high and how deep and how wide the love of Christ is for you and stop running from God and instead run to him. And you can do that this morning. If you're with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, listen, when we talk about the love of God, we're talking about the very center of our faith because Christianity is a religion of God's love for his people. Yeah, it's a love that he's demonstrated in space and time history by sending the Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, into this world to lay down his life for sinners so that they might become the sons and daughters of God. And here's the good news of Christianity. We call it the gospel. The good news of Christianity is that you can enter into that same relationship even this morning if you'll turn from your sins and you'll put your trust in Jesus. You know, the Bible does contain bad news. The Bible teaches us that God is a good and holy creator who made us to, to know him and to love him. God wanted to walk in a perfect relationship with us. But our first parents, they, they rejected God. They sinned against him in the garden. They decided it would be better for them to live for themselves than to live for God. We sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same nature of rebellion against God. And it looks like this. It looks like shrinking down the universe to the size of my desires and me and focusing on what makes me happy. And so while we were created to love God and love others, we're all just kind of been turned in on ourselves because of our sin. And it leads us to sin against God, to, to reject him, and it leads us to harm others as well. This is what the Bible calls sin. The Bible says that sin is serious. The Bible says that sin separates us from God. And the Bible says this, that God is holy and we are not holy. So there's no way for us to be good enough for God. There's no way for us to earn his love and acceptance by the things that we have done. The Bible says if we die in our sins, unforgiven, then we will face God's just wrath forever and ever and ever. And it sounds like profoundly bad news. But then there's this glorious good news. And the good news is that this God that we've sinned against is a loving and gracious God. God the Father sent his son into the world. The eternal son of God became a man, Jesus. Jesus came to live the kind of life that we should have lived, but we've all failed to live. 
And then Jesus laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. On the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, and then he rose from the dead in space and time history, demonstrating that he is who he claimed to be. And then there's this glorious message, and we we can share it with you this morning, this glorious message. If you will turn from living for yourselves and from your sin, just as we had to turn from living for ourselves and our sins, and if you will put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, then he becomes your Savior. All the sins that you committed, past, present, even the sins you'll commit in the future, all of them will have been paid for by Christ on the cross. And when God looks at you, he will not see you and your failure. No, the glory of the gospel is that he will see Jesus covering you with his perfect righteousness. This is how you enter into the love of God. It's by turning from self and trusting in Christ and him alone. And you can do that this morning. And we'd urge you to do that this morning. And here's the best part. All who receive Christ as Savior... They enter into the love of God. God loves them perfectly in this life, and he loves them perfectly forever and ever and ever. There is no better news than that. So here's my question. Do you, in your experience, know what it is to be loved like that? Have you experienced that in your life? My friend, if you haven't, you can do that today. And we urge you, turn from self, turn from sin, Put your hope in Jesus, and he will save you. There's one more result that Paul wants God to produce in the lives of these Ephesian believers. Look, if you will, at the last part of verse 19. It says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, that is a staggering request. God indwells each believer by his spirit. But Paul is asking God to do more than simply indwell He's asking God to fill these Ephesian believers and remember, and us, to the brim with his spirit. So I found John MacArthur helpful here. He said, to be filled up to all the fullness of God means to be totally dominated by him with nothing left of self or any part of the old man. By definition, then, to be filled with God is to be emptied of self. It is not to have much of God and little of self, but all of God and none of self. And here's my question. How is that possible? How can we be filled with all of God's fullness? How can the infinite fit into the finite? And here's the answer. I don't know. But I agree with James Montgomery Boyce that at least part of the answer to this question is that we will have all eternity to experience this. And so heaven will be this filling upon filling upon filling upon filling and so on forever as God increasingly pours himself into our hearts. Is there anything more glorious than that? That's what Paul's praying for these believers. So, friend, what are you living for? Are you living for money? You can lose it tomorrow. Are you living for sex? The pleasure of that will only last so long, and then it will be gone forever. Are you living for relationships? Here's a stark reality. Death will ultimately rob us of everyone we have ever loved 
in this life. If you're living for anything in this world, you're you're living for something you will lose. No, don't do that. There's something better to live for. So, So this morning, what we're doing is we're trying to lay before you, friend, the hope we have as Christians. And the hope we have with Christians is that there's a love that's stronger than death. That there's a relationship that lasts beyond the grave and it goes to all eternity that forever and ever and ever we will delight in the God whom we love now, that that same relationship that we enjoy right now, well, it just gets better and better and better as we increasingly comprehend the infinite greatness of the love of Jesus Christ for us. And we invite you to that this morning. Now, if you want to talk with someone about what it would mean to have a, a relationship with God that's, that's marked by this kind of love, then we'd love to talk with you after the service this morning, share with you what Christ has done for us. Let me just give you a little challenge. It won't, won't cost you anything just to listen to what Christ has done for us. And we'd encourage you to do that. This morning we've seen a lot, right? Paul prayed that these Ephesians and all believers, including us, would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That will be our joyful task in this life. That is our joyful task for all eternity knowing the surpassing love of Christ. We've tried to understand this love a bit more, but again, we're just at the surface, right? So may God in his kindness help us today and tomorrow and every day grow more in our knowledge of the greatness of Christ's love for us. And let's pray.